Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 110, Robots and Us. Well, you've got to hand it to the robots. They've flown by every planet in the solar system, landed on two, and orbited five, not to mention various asteroids, comets, and dwarf planet encounters. As for us, well, we've been to the moon. So, given all that, what does the future hold? Dear Cheap Astronomy, what kind of robots will we send to other star systems? This question assumes that interstellar travel from Earth will be undertaken by robots rather than us. This is a reasonable proposition, given that going to the nearest star would take at least 40 years, and that's assuming you can achieve speeds in the order of 10% of the speed of light, which is a big assumption. 40 years is a long time, and the return journey of 80 years is even longer, so it makes more sense to send robots, have them check the place out, and send us back data. If the place does look habitable, you could then send more robots to establish a base camp for a subsequent human mission. Current thinking about the first such reconnaissance missions is to send a fleet of wafer-thin robots attached to light sails that are propelled by laser light fired from an array of lasers that we build here on Earth or that we build out in space. The robotic craft will have to be wafer-thin to keep their mass down, and there will have to be a fleet of them, since the intention is to accelerate them up to 20% of the speed of light, so they might get to the nearest star system, Alpha Centauri, within 20 years. At that speed, a lot of them will be taken out, or otherwise knocked irretrievably off course, by collisions with dust grains. Indeed, there's no guarantee that any of them will make it all the way. And even if they do, they will be screaming through that alien stellar system at 20% of the speed of light, so they may only manage to send back a few short exposure images of the system, with no guarantee that the possibly habitable exoplanet Proxima Centauri b will be on the right side of its 11-day stellar orbit as our wafer-thin robots shoot past. So this quick mission option carries a high risk of either outright failure or long-term disappointment, and hence wafer-thin robots may not be the best approach. While you might get a quick outcome, quick still means 20 years travel time, plus another four years to send the data back at light speed, and you probably need a decade or more of development work to get the idea from the drawing board to the launch pad. All of which means that whoever signs the first paycheck will probably be dead long before the mission achieves anything. If instead humanity agrees that the mission will be funded as a long-term investment to benefit future generations, then the time frame ceases to matter. If we did send a slower spacecraft with the capacity to manoeuvre, both en route and at its destination, the chances of success would go way up. 
Although we are then looking at a spacecraft with a lot more mass. Once you're relying on an onboard propulsion system, you'll have to carry all the fuel you'll need with you. And since you're dealing with a trip that involves hundreds of years rather than decades, you'll need onboard power generation rather than just batteries. And since you were traveling between stars, it's going to have to be a nuclear power generator. So since this is clearly going to be a very big ship anyway, you can easily take along some robots that aren't wafer thin. And what would those robots be like? Well, first consider that the ship itself is essentially a robot. It might carry some independent functional units that would manage all the onboard maintenance and repairs, and you might also have shuttlecraft that could leave the mothership and go exploring when it arrives at a distant stellar system. But here there's no need for Robbie the Robot or C-3PO. The only purpose in having human form robots is if they are going to operate systems or use tools that have been designed for use by humans. And since the spacecraft won't have any humans, it won't need life support and it won't need gravity. So the functional units that move around the ship and repair things are more likely to be octopus form. Since legs are unnecessary, but lots of arms are useful, and it's helpful for a robot to have a head that can capture visual and audio input, as well as managing central data processing and communications. The robots that descend in shuttlecraft to explore alien worlds might be rover-like, since they're better off with wheels rather than legs for mobility, and they'll have lots of sensors, drills and rock hammers, perhaps a bit like R2-D2, and there might also be a small fleet of flying robot drones, assuming the planet they're exploring has an atmosphere. So what kind of robots will we send? Octopuses, or maybe spiders, and maybe R2-D2, but certainly not C-3PO. This is the middle bit. A universe full of robots does seem a likely scenario, particularly since any technologically competent aliens will probably end up doing the same thing as us. Why put your life at risk when you can just send your plastic pal? So, of course, that begs the question, Dear Cheap Astronomy, do we really need to send humans into space? Well, yes, we really do. Cheap Astronomy is a big advocate of getting robots, our manufactured progeny, out there, but the technology just isn't good enough yet for robots to replace the role and function that people can play. The robots will be able to do all those things one day, and on that day us humans can just stay home and let them get on with it. But until then, there's a gap that needs to be filled, and there is some growing urgency to fill that gap. The urgency is driven by population growth and resource utilisation. That is, you can't have one without the other. A fundamental truth of life as we know it is that anyone who doesn't want to have children doesn't contribute to the gene pool, and hence the gene pool will always be dominated by people wanting to have children. Most doomsday scenarios about unrestrained population growth have turned out to be wrong, 
since science and technology have improved the efficiency of resource utilisation and given us access to resources we didn't have before. Nonetheless, one single planet must eventually have its limits. So now we are looking to science and technology to access yet more resources we couldn't access before, the ones out there in the solar system and beyond. And by and large, population expansion is a good thing. It's tough on the environment, but more people means more brains and more diverse ways of problem solving. So let's hope that problem solving is used to effect in both sustaining the environment, but also getting us back to the moon and at least getting robots to other planets. This will all work out fine if it does allow us to access more resources and hence expand our capacity for growth. If all that doesn't work out, then all sorts of bad things could eventuate, like wars and stuff. So yes, sending humans to space really is important. As we've detailed in previous podcasts, the space resources we may be able to access in the near future range from rare metals for high-tech manufacturing and not-so-rare metals for general manufacturing and also phosphorus, a limited but totally vital resource for agriculture. A quick and effective way to grab large volumes of all these materials is Cheap Astronomy's CSOTM proposal. That is, crash on the moon. But even to achieve that much, we will need to establish an import supply chain that can transport materials from the moon and gently land extracted resources back on Earth, as well as having an export supply chain to get the necessary machinery and workers off-world and into space. Again, a day may come when robot workers can do it all for us, but that's well beyond what's possible with 21st century technologies. And the 21st century is really when you want all this to start taking off. For CSOTM to work, we will need robot explorers to scout around the asteroids, grab some good candidate rocks, and steer them round to crash on uninhabited parts of the moon. But from there, to manage the logistics and sheer mechanics of refining, packing and sending the desired products back to Earth, we'll need people to make it all happen. So the idea that we are going to build colonies out in space for people to live once it gets too crowded here is unlikely to ever happen, since no one's really going to want to do it, or pay for it, But if you create a space economy where people will pay to get the goods and other people will want to live and work out there to get the pay, then you've got yourself a workable human race expansion strategy. Of course, the problem with all this is getting it all started. Not to mention focusing our efforts on these specific objectives. So if we're going to establish a moon base, great! If we're going to create a space tourism industry with orbiting snack bars, brilliant. But chasing a difficult, dangerous and largely symbolic objective, like landing someone on Mars, well, maybe not. What we need is to start getting out there in large numbers, not just a couple of people at a time. And we need to start laying some foundations. And the sooner, the better. This is the end bit. So, there you go. We'll send robots out to explore the cosmos 
but we also need to take a few tentative steps ourselves. We will make a mess of wherever we go, because that's what people do. And whenever we do discover intelligent aliens, it will probably be the result of detecting pollutants in their exoplanet atmosphere, or perhaps by detecting some floating junk pile that's blocked out their starlight. On the bright side, our robot progeny are more likely to be neat and tidy, able to explore other stellar systems without trashing the place. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to trash the solar system, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and let us make a mess of things for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy. Steve, do you think people will write in and say robots have orbited and landed on Earth, which means robots have actually orbited six planets and landed on three of them? No chance of that, Bridget. Our listeners are far too sophisticated to indulge in such pedantry. Well, that's a relief.